0: Our study of the book of Revelation brings us now to chapter 20, where we find the millennium period. That's Jesus reigning for a thousand years. We're gonna talk about the millennium next Wednesday night. We're gonna talk about the whole thing. And uh, I think it's gonna be a really good study, but we're gonna only cover the first three verses today because in preparation for the millennium, Satan is bound for a thousand years. And we're gonna read that and look at what it says. Now, this brings up the question, why would God release Satan after the thousand years? He's bound for a thousand years. We would think that he would come bind Satan forever, but he's released after a thousand years and he's allowed to go out and deceive the nations once again at the end of the millennium. We'll understand the numbers a little bit better next week about how many people there could be in the millennium period, how many could be deceived uh, by him. Also, it brings up the question, why did God create Satan in the first place? I mean, why would he re-release him? But why did he create him in the first place? Wouldn't this world be a lot simpler if we didn't have Satan and God being all knowing knew when he created Lucifer or Satan that he was going to fall away and that he was going to become this evil thing. And so God could have stopped a lot of evil and a lot of deception by not having Satan. And because Satan is evil, it also brings up the question, why does God allow evil? So all of those are intertwined in our study tonight. Now, we'll be talking about these today. Tonight we are covering four verses, or three verses. I don't know why I have four here. Three verses. One, two, three. It's just three verses. Uh, So we're covering three verses. And we're going to, oh, we're covering four verses. We are. Okay, let me finish my, my little line here on my notes. Tonight we're covering four verses, one through three, and verse seven. So we're throwing verse seven up into it, and you'll see why once we get there. Next week we'll look at the millennium. So let's start with our text. So in verse one of Revelation chapter 20, you remember that we just had the glorious return of Jesus. The sky scrolled back. Jesus came through on, the, on his white horse to establish his kingdom. The very first thing is that is done as he begins this millennial reign is to bind Satan. So verse one, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit And a great chain in his hand. Now, I've made reference before to Michael being the one who finally binds him and and, and puts him in the bottomless pit. But, and and maybe later on Michael does get involved in it, but this is an angel. And we know that Satan has parameters. We know that when he went, this angel easily catches him, catches him and locks him up in the bottomless pit. We believe that Lucifer was one of the high-ranking angels before he fell. And we'll show you why tonight we believe that. But God is all-powerful. It's not even close between God and Satan. And so Satan falls under the subjection of God, and God here easily handles him by an angel that throws him into the bottomless pit. He has the key in his hand. He's got a chain. It says in verse 2, He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, And Satan. So John wanted to make sure that you knew who this was, that it's, it's the serpent from the Garden of Eden. It's, it's the arch enemy, the devil, Satan, the serpent of old, the dragon. And it says, and bound him for a thousand years. And again, we're talking, it's a limited time. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut it up and set a seal on him. Now a seal from God, a seal is something that doesn't allow something to be opened. So you put a seal on a letter or the, the, uh, Jesus' tomb had a seal placed upon it that he wasn't going to be able to get out until, he would, until God got him out. There's no escaping this prison, is what the seal means. So that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. And notice that one of the things that this serpent of old, this dragon, uh, the, the, the devil, Satan, the devil means accuser, Satan means opposer, he opposes us, is to deceive the nations. And I think he's working overtime now. I think the nations around the world have been deceived. And I think there's great deception happening in the United States today. A lot of things that are just anti-God against God. There's a lot of propaganda taking place today. I don't know if there's ever been a time where there's as much propaganda happening Since World War II, when Hitler propagandized against the Jews and people are buying it. People are buying the propaganda. It's been through Hollywood for a long time. Hollywood is a godless world. Have you ever noticed that? When, When a movie comes out, almost never, rarely, almost never, they go, they'll go through a crisis and they never pray. They never go to God. They never talk about God. It's a godless universe that that Hollywood has. And they're trying to influence us through those movies. The same thing is true with Disney and our children. They are full on now just in propagandizing our our kids in what they're putting in their their shows. And you just got to be really careful. I know your kids want to see the stuff that's coming out, but you've got to be really careful. And um, I'm, I'm not sure what I would do now if I had kids that were in that age group. I'm not sure that I would let them watch anything from Disney because they are so full of propaganda. And kids at that age are little bitty sponges. And Satan is involved in all of this. And that's right, I said Satan is involved in Disneyland. I'm not Disneyland, in Disney, the Disney movies. And I really, I really believe that. I haven't always felt that way, but I certainly do now. I think the world is being deceived by him. And I think they're buying it hook, line and sinker. And we are coming into the last days And um, then in Revelation 27, it says, now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and he is able to go and deceive the nations once again. So here you've got a group of people, the, the people that have populated the world. When Jesus comes back, there's Jewish people who are alive, protected. There's Gentiles who survive the tribulation period. Some of them may even be Christians, I don't know. But they survive it. And they populate the earth during the time of the millennium reign. And Jesus rules and reigns from Jerusalem. And there is no Satan. There's no tempter. There's no opposer. There's no accuser that, that stands against anyone in the world. But they still have the sin nature. And the Bible says God rules them with a rod of iron. Now, what does that mean that Jesus rules with a rod of iron? It means he's not going to take any nonsense. It means that when people in their sin nature do certain things, that he's going to deal with it. He's ruling with the rod of iron. He he certainly is merciful. He's certainly gracious. But during that millennium, he's going to keep things on a tight leash, as it were. And then at the end, these people that have lived in this environment where he's 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 the king on the throne, and they give allegiance to him and they serve him, but now, all of a sudden, when Satan is released, there's a choice that they can make whether or not they will continue to follow him or follow him or whether they will walk away and, and live for themselves. And they respond to the deception of the enemy, which reveals what's in their hearts, and they will walk away. And, and, and we'll see this in our study over the next couple of weeks. Now, let's talk a little bit about Satan, about who he was and, and who he became. So Satan was a high-ranking angel in heaven. And Isaiah 14 is a passage to the king of Babylon. But around verse 12, you can see that he shifts from the personal king of Babylon to the power behind Babylon. So he's still talking to the king of Babylon, but now it's the spiritual power behind it. And here's what he says in verses 12 through 16. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning! Now let's pause there for a moment. Lucifer is—it was the Latin word for morning star, or for Venus. The King James Bible and the New King James Bible carried it across. The New King James Bible doesn't always do the things that the King James Bible does. They carried it across where they put Lucifer here, and that has become the name by which Satan is known for. I called him Lucifer earlier and I don't even believe it's his name. We're so used to calling him that. I think God's doing something else here and I'll show you what I think is being done. Now, I wanna read to you this same passage out of the NASB. The NASB is a good Bible for Bible study. This is the 2020 version. Uh, If you have an NIV or you have an ESV, they don't use Lucifer either. You can read there, and it's something similar to the NASB. Here's what it says in Isaiah 14, 12, in the NASB version. How you have fallen from heaven, you star of the morning, sun of dawn. You have been cut down from the earth, you, were defe- you, you who defeated the nations. So here he says to him, how you've fallen, O morning star. Now, one of two things is happening here. Lucifer himself may have been a morning star. So it says in the book of Job, God says to Job, God's asking him questions. Remember at the end of the book, God comes to Job and says, I got a question for you. Job's been asking questions of God all all the time. And now God says, I got questions for you. One of the questions that God has is, were you there when I laid the foundations of the world, when all the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? So this is the moment he lays the foundations of the world. The angels are there, the invisible created by Jesus. The the Bible says in Colossians that he made everything visible and invisible. And he was before all things and all things were made by him. So there's nothing that was made before him. Jesus was the creator along with the Father and the Spirit to make everything. So there are morning stars that sing together. And do you wonder what that verse is? It is one of my favorite verses. Just the thought of God creating the foundations of the earth and the morning stars singing together and the sons of God shouting for joy. Now, sons of God is a reference for, for uh, angels. And you find it in, in, in Job. You find it in a couple of other places. But here you've got the... Uh, sons of God shouting for joy. And if angels are called sons of God, then think of the relationship that God has with angels as well. There is a love relationship between God and the angels as well, although we don't think of that very often, where they are called sons of God. So he says to him, how you fallen, O O star of the morning? Now, was Satan one of the morning stars that shouted for joy when the foundations of the world were laid? Perhaps we know that Jesus is the bright and morning star, as in the one bright and morning star. And so some people have confused this saying, well, well, Satan's a morning star here and Jesus is a morning star in the book of Peter, but he's the bright and morning star. And then he calls him son of the dawn. Well, I think what he's doing here is he's mocking him. How you have fallen, you wanted to be lifted up. You wanted to be like God. You wanted to be a star that shines brighter than anything else up in the heavens. But how you have fallen, O oh, star of the morning, son of the dawn, or Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. And see, so we see through his deception, the nations of the world have been weakened. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. See, he mocked him as being a morning star, son of the dawn, because he's fallen, but he wanted to ascend up into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. He wanted to be like Jesus. He wanted to be like the bright and morning star. I also will set on the mount of the congregation. On the furthest side of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. So here we have Isaiah saying he's going to go into the pit. Here we have in Revelation, him thrown into the pit. But notice that he wanted to be like the Most High. Does that sound familiar when it comes to Satan? So he's in the garden. He appears as a, as a serpent who's more cunning than any other beast of the field. And through the serpent, he says to them, If you eat of the fruit of the tree of good and evil, you will be like God. Here he wants to be like God. So the same thing that brought Satan down, and I I take it the other angels, is the same thing that brought humans down. The desire to be like God. And that desire is still strong within within humans. It's strong in the new age movement. They they want to be, God. they believe they're gods, It's strong in in some churches where they teach that we are gods, that we are little G's, that we have creative power like God does. It's just wrong. We are not. I always like to say, let me break it to you easily. You're not God. There's there's one God and it's not you. All right. And you don't make up any part of, of who God is, your creation, by him. So there's that temptation. And then he says that you'll be thrown into the pit. Now, Ezekiel 28 is a similar passage, but this time he's talking to the king of Tyre. And when he's talking to the king of Tyre and telling him about the judgments that's going to happen to this king for the wicked things he's done, he then takes a few verses and speaks to the power behind the king of Tyre. And here's what it says in, just, in verse 15 of Ezekiel 28. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection. So when angels are created, they're they're not sinning. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. When you think of Satan, you don't think of something beautiful, do you? The Bible says that Satan appears as an angel of light. It says his ministers appear as angels of light. And we understand why, because Satan appears as an angel of light. So, so people are preaching lies, but they look like every other real solid good Bible teacher and Satan himself shows up as an angel of light. He was perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. We take it that that was before Adam and Eve. Every precious stone was your covering. The Sardis, the diamond, beryl, onyx, the jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald with gold. So all of these jewels in the presence of God would reflect his glory. God is so glorious that the glory would kill us. The Bible says no one can look on him and live the glory. And and can you imagine what he looked like? Beautiful, perfect, and adorned in all of these jewels in the presence of the glory of God, reflecting back out the light from God. He must have looked spectacular. And he began to believe that he was something more than he was. Then it says, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes were prepared for you on the day you were created. Timbrels and pipes, music. It's interesting that we don't see, I was trying to think, I think I found a place where it talked about angels singing finally. I've said for years, there's no place in the Bible that angels sing. I think I came across one of them. But it's interesting. Most of the things we think they sing, they say. Like at Christmas time, the angels in the field by Bethlehem. It says they said glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to men. They say it, they don't sing it. But here there's music and some have connected Satan's, his attack on music to him being able to, to play music. And again, Hollywood, um, the, the music industry, a lot of it has so much in it that is so bad. It goes on to say, your pipes were prepared for you on the day you were created. So it goes back to that day when God did create him. You were an, the anointed cherub who covers. So now we know he was a cherubim. He's the anointed cherub who covers. Does this mean he was one of the cherubs that covers the mercy seat in heaven, the Ark of the Covenant that's up in heaven? Remember, the temple was a pattern of something really up in heaven. And so he was a cherub who covered. We see cherubim in the Bible. I don't know if we ever think of of Satan, almost called him Lucifer again, as the cherub, a cherub who covers. He says, I established you. Whatever it means, Satan was established by him. You were on the holy mountain of God. Did you know there was a holy mountain of God? I wonder if it's Sinai. That's what I think of when I think of a holy mountain of God. But I don't know. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. This is kind of foreign to us. When did Satan as an angel on the mountain of God walk back and forth in the fiery stones? You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Deuteronomy 29, 29. Talk about a passage that's easy to remember. The secret things belong to God. And the revealed things belong to us. God has not told us everything. There are secret things that he has not revealed to us. And when we get a flash like this, what does he mean you walk back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones? It says you were perfect in all in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. So here we have the description. We have his fall in Isaiah. We have a description of him here and his fall also in the book of of Ezekiel. And we get a better understanding of who he is. Now, however, Satan, in his angelic form, decided he did not want to be a part of what God was doing and wanted to do his own thing. This could most likely and probably is the birth of evil. This is where evil starts. Now, someone's gonna bring up Isaiah 45, seven, because if evil starts here, then why evil? Because God didn't create evil, God is good. And when Satan made a decision to do his own thing and to go away from God, then evil was left. Evil wasn't created by God any more than darkness is created by God. God creates light that banishes the darkness any more than shadows are created by God. God has light, that light creates shadows. The shadows were created when he created the light. I heard someone bring up the idea of a pothole. We call it a pothole, but it's really nothing. It's a hole where there used to be pavement and it's called a pothole, but it's nothing. It was created by tearing out part of the road. So the separation from God created him to be evil. And because he is an extremely powerful being, his ability to be evil is grand. Men can be evil in grand ways. Satan's is even grander than that. So, as I said, someone's going to bring up Isaiah 45, seven, which says in the King James version of the Bible only, it says, I formed the light and created darkness So there's the juxtaposition, light and darkness. I formed the light and created darkness. I make peace and create evil. Now remember, this is the King James Bible. The one that's showing is the New King James. I'll read that in a minute. I make peace and and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now here's what it says in the New King James. I form the light and create the darkness, light and darkness. I make the peace and create calamity or disaster. So it's just opposed against peace. The word that's translated evil could be translated evil, but the context will tell you that. It usually means something bad, a disaster, a calamity. That's what it usually means. Very rarely is it translated as evil, but the context would tell you. So what does the context tell us here? I make peace, and he's gonna just oppose that to evil or to calamity. So calamity is what should be here. God didn't create evil. God says, I I formed the light and create darkness. I made peace and I create calamity. And so God didn't create evil. Evil was a decision to move away from him. He created a world where evil is possible, to be sure. But he didn't create evil itself. Evil is the opposite of what God is. Now, some say if God is good, Then why is there evil? They think this disproves the existence of God. This is an argument that has been all out abandoned by the atheist. You're not going to you're not going to watch an atheist and uh, an apologist or an atheist and a scholar debating. They're going to bring up this anymore because it's just it's by arguing that there is evil in the world. There isn't a God. You've got to go back around to the moral question. If there if there is no God, then what is what makes something evil? If there's no God, then why is there evil? Frank Turek would say you're borrowing from God to make your argument against God because you're talking about morality. But you believe as an atheist that there is no set morality, but then you're calling something evil. So it's abandoned because they can't win it in a debate. It's going to come back and they end up arguing for God when they try to use a moral question. So they have abandoned all moral questions because they realize that moral questions bring, comes to morality. And if there's morality, there's got to be a morality giver. And if there's a morality giver, then that's God, because that's what our morality is set from, the things that God has given us. So they abandon it. Actually, evil, the presence of evil, is an argument for the existence of God, not against the existence of God. And that's why they abandon it. The same thing is true with suffering. They've abandoned the the suffering. If God is good, then why is there suffering in the world? Which is a form of the same question, why is there evil, why is there suffering? So God created Satan knowing that he would become evil because God has a purpose for evil. When someone says, if God is good, and then why is there evil? There's an assumption. The assumption is that evil is just, doesn't have any purposes. That there's no purpose for evil. The same thing is true when someone says, if God is good, why is there suffering? They're assuming God doesn't have purposes for suffering. But we've seen, even in recent studies, that God uses suffering for his purposes. And the same thing is true for evil. Now, this can, can hit us in an emotional way. Because we, we, we experienced evil in our lives We hear of evil things that people do. We think of the Holocaust, which is where this argument first came out. If God is good, why did he allow the Holocaust? You think of the great evils that were done in that day, but you've got to somehow separate the emotional feeling that you get on the the, the harm that evil is playing on people with the reality of what God's doing. Paul said in Romans, I think it's 8.8, the suffering of this present age cannot be compared to the glory that we're going to receive. And that God uses those difficulties. Now, what Satan did, what God did with Satan, was create him with free will. God created all of the angels with free will. They don't have to serve him. Why? Because God loves the angels and he wants them to love him. But if you make someone love you, then, there's a problem, right? Uh, again, I'll, I'll refer to Frank Turek. Frank Turek likes to use an analogy where he says, ladies, answer me this. If you've got a guy who says you're going to love me, I'm going to make you love me, what do you do? Run as fast as you can. That's a major red flag, right? say so you're going to love me, I'm going to make you love me. So what kind of God would make someone that is only going to love him, that only can love him? So he gave Satan free choice. And Satan decided he wanted to walk away. He was deceived himself by his pride and he thought he could be like God. And so he turned around and walked away. And that brought evil into the world. The same thing is true with us. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. They made a decision with their free will. God gave men and women free will. And with that free will, you decide whether you want to follow God or not. And if you follow God, then you're going to ultimately go to perfection. It starts you down a road where you are sanctified, where you begin to do the things he wants you to do, where then you go up into heaven and you are receive a new body and you become like Jesus. It says we don't know what we will be, but we know that when we see him, we will be like him. When you reject God, you start down a road that makes you evil and you continue to be more evil. Now, some people are going to object to that. They're going to go, there's good people. And, and, and granted, I'm going to grant you that. There are good people by human standards. But inside of everyone is evil. I have it. You have it. It's where, because we fell, we were born with a sin nature and we have that propensity. You, you might say, not me. I've never had an evil thought in my life. I don't know, is lying an evil thought? I, I don't know. You say, I'm, I'm a good, person. I wouldn't have that kind of thought. But we all have it. But the interesting thing is that God's purpose for evil, Romans 8, 28, we know this verse really well. And we know all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So God, he doesn't say he makes things to be used for our good but God uses all things together for the good. So everything that happens, God uses for the good. In Genesis 50:20, Joseph's brothers came to him. They had sold him into slavery. That was evil. When he was in Egypt, he was, his, his owner was Potiphar, the commander of the, the uh, Pharaoh's army. His wife accused him of attempted rape. That was evil. He was thrown into prison where they put him in fetters and hurt his feet. Some believe he was crippled from that. That was evil. And then he could interpret dreams. Pharaoh has a dream, a fat cow and a skinny cow. Joseph comes up and says the fat cow were seven plentiful years and the skinny cow were seven years of famine. And if you stockpile things during the plentiful years, you'll be able to save many people alive during the years of famine. And so he takes Joseph out of prison, puts him in charge of it. He becomes the second of of, a most important person only under Pharaoh in Egypt. And he stockpiles money during the fat years and then hands it out to all of the people that are around them. And during while he's doing that, saving their lives, the brothers come to get food. Jacob hears there's food in Egypt. The brothers come to get food. Joseph looks down. He's an Egyptian. He's dressed like an Egyptian, talks like an Egyptian, walks like an Egyptian. And he looks down on them and he sees it's his brothers. Long story short, they are united. Jacob, their father, finds out that his son is alive. They are united. And then he dies. Jacob dies. And when he dies, the brothers decide, we better go talk to Joseph because he might, he might, now the dad's gone, he might be out for his revenge. And so they come to him and say, we were thinking about when we did this, this, this evil to you. And and Joseph says to them, this is Genesis 50, 20. But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. There it is. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. God allowed it because God had a purpose in it. And we don't know what purpose might might happen the secret things belong to god we don't know something bad might happen to me but that might result in something good happening to many people we don't know it's like the butterfly effect right one butterfly flying somewhere could eventually cause a tsunami around the world at least that's the theory there's so many little different connected things that everything that happens to us happens it's like the old chinese saying of a man whose, whose son was drafted And somebody next to him said, that's so bad. And he said, how do you know? The next day, his son broke his leg. He said, oh, that's so bad. He said, how do you know? The next, and it just keeps going on and on. And every bad thing that happens, how do you know? We don't know what God's going to do. In fact, we have the promise that God's going to use it for good. Now, the cross is the greatest example of this. Evil men arrested Jesus and crucified him. And God used that to bring salvation to anyone who would call on his name, to anyone who would respond in that positive way to the light that they were given. Now, one of the reasons that there is evil is that God gave us free will. God can't do something that is illogical. Like the question, can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? Now, now I've heard this question for a long time. And and the answer is no. God can't make a rock so big he can't move it because God can't make a square circle or a one-ended stick. That it's a logical fallacy to think that there's an answer to it. There's not. And so God had to give free will and there had to be something that just opposed the free will that God that that appealed to man. So that men could could choose it and want it. And men love evil. Men's hearts turn towards evil. That's why there's so many evil things that are done. That's why in our day they call good evil and evil good. And the Bible says, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Because men like it. And so they turn and go towards the evil. Making a decision to live for it. Another reason God That God has another reason is that God has a purpose in it. God gave us free will. God's got purposes in it. Number three, having evil in the world creates a world where more people can turn to God. It's it's difficulties, it's hardships that that cause us to turn to Him. If there were no struggles, no evil, and no suffering, would you be a Christian? What would, would you make those decisions? It could be that the world that we have is the best world for bringing people to Christ, the the maximum number of people to Christ in the world that we have. When you look in a mirror and you're honest with yourself and you see that there's evil there and that you can't help it, you can't stop it, then that drives you to God. His mercies are new every morning. Jesus shed his blood for us to be forgiven. And we see it and it brings us to God. God. And I also believe that Satan is a picture of what ultimate evil is. So we have this example of what ultimate evil is so that we don't go all out, abandoned on on evil because we know what all, all out evil is. And so there's a restrainer in the way. Satan is evil. But as an example to us, we see the evil so we don't pursue it. Now, that doesn't mean men don't because because I say everyone has evil in them. Some are are, have a small amount of evil and some have great evil in them because men can go out and become all out evil. Now, let's get back to Satan being evil. God has a purpose for him. He is fulfilling the role that is needed, much like Judas fulfilled a role, the sacrifice for Jesus. He has to be here for the world to be what it is to be able to have the free will and the genuine choice that's out there. He represents an alternative to God. And men love evil and darkness. That's why they go and do their evil deeds at night, Jesus said. He also proves this contrast between evil and the goodness of God. We see God's goodness in a clearer way when we see the evil. Now, for a thousand years, there has been no Satan. Men still have a sin nature, an evil heart, and Jesus has been ruling them with a rod of iron. So for a thousand years, they've been been keeping it in line by Christ. But now he's got to give them the same choice that he gave everybody else. He can't make them serve him. They have to make a choice whether or not they want to serve him and live for him. They have free will. And so Satan will be let out for all of the reasons that he was created in the first place, he is let out once again. So the tempter is released to fulfill the purposes God has for him one more time, to provide an alternative to the living God. And because evil is a temptation, men can embrace it and love it. God will also bring good out of the final time of the deception of the devil. He is also a living analogy or example for what evil is and for all of those reasons, God one more time lets them out to be able to deceive the nations until finally there is the final destruction at the end of the millennial period. And we'll talk about that here in a few weeks. Now, three things in closing. Number one, Satan's fall and embracing of evil is like the fall of mankind and our embracing of evil. So when someone asks the question, why is, why did God create Satan? You could answer by saying, why did God create me? Because there's evil inside of me. Why did God create you? Because there's evil inside of you. Number two, once my notes open back up again, my iPad is possessed, by the way, over the last few services. Uh, Number two. The choice to love God or love the world has a real choice to it. You, you can love this world and it's attractive to love the world. Or you can love God. Which is attractive as well, but that's for the spirit, not for the flesh. That's why the Bible says the love of this world is enmity with God and all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, and the lust of the eyes, that, that, that is what attracts us to it. And there had to be a real choice, a real choice. So people have that choice today and people make their decisions. Knowing what we know about the world, Satan and evil, this is three. What is your choice going to be? You have a choice. This is one of the reasons that I struggle with the once saved, always saved idea. You guys know that I I really don't come down on either side. It's still an open issue to me. I probably lean towards once saved, always saved. And if it is not once saved, always saved, it's very hard to leave God. And it's going to be very few people because he comes after, you know, he leaves the 99 and goes after the one. But this is one of my struggles with it. Do I now not have a choice? Because I'm a genuine Christian? Has God taken away my choice to walk away from him? Do I still have freedom of choice? to walk away from him. So that's one of the reasons I just can't settle all the way into, just one of them, there's a few more. I can't settle all the way into the once saved, always saved position. Because I wonder if God would take away our freedom that we have to be able to follow him. Now he'll come after you. I'll leave the 99, I'll go after the one, right? But I wonder that. But what is your choice going to be? You are gonna serve God? Then serve it with everything. And serve him wholeheartedly. Love him with it all. Don't be a a halfway Christian. Be an all out Christian. Live wholeheartedly for him. Giving him all. And God's plan and rule for Satan will be revealed eventually. I think the things I covered are true. But I think there's more we don't know. Ultimately, I don't think we know it all. The secret things belong to God and God will reveal them to us in his time. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the time that we can spend here today talking about Satan, talking about evil, about the choices that we have. And we pray, Lord, that we would make good decisions. You've said that if we sow to the Spirit, from the Spirit we'll reap life. If we sow to the flesh, from the flesh we'll reap corruption. And that's for Christians. Lord, help us to sow to the Spirit that we would be able to reap life and not sow to the flesh and reap the corruption that's there. And I pray for those who are here who have never made a decision to follow you. They're living for themselves or they're living for this world. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to them clearly that the path they choose today puts them on a path towards perfection with you eventually or puts them into the path of ultimate darkness eventually. We thank you for this